I think Eliza hit the nail on the head earlier. I think it's honesty, honesty, honesty. That's that's the big one. And accuracy, because at the end of the day, it's going to be if it's garbage in, it's going to be garbage out. Our our rank lists are going to be based on flawed data, and we may not match with the best applicants at the end of the day with our programs. Hi, this is Taylor Stuber. And this is Sean Smith-Gall. We are both clinical pharmacists and faculty members at Auburn University, Harrison School of Pharmacy, and we are your hosts for the Postgraduate Pharmacists. We focus on all topics related to postgraduate training. From current events to advice, we bring you, the listener, up-to-date content related to postgraduate training. New episodes are released every other Monday, so don't forget to like or subscribe. You can also follow us on social media at The Postgraduate Pharmacist. The reason we are here today is to talk all things related to the letters of reference. Recently, there has been a lot of buzz on online communities and in the literature related to letters of reference. With another season of APPEs about to begin, reference writers will be in high demand. We brought in some experts to help discuss this important topic today. Our guests today are Mate Sorik, Lee Skrupke, and Eliza D. Borman. Before we get started, do you all mind sharing a little bit about yourself, your current position, and your journey in pharmacy? All right. Hello, everyone. My name is Mate Sorik. Thanks for having me. Currently, I'm chair and professor of pharmacy practice at Northeast Ohio Medical University. Uh, but before that, I was a RPD for two programs up here in Northeast Ohio. Yeah, thanks. My name is Lee Skrupke. Currently, I work as a pharmacy education manager for Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. In this role, I oversee education and training for pharmacy staff across our Midwest sites and support the 15 residency programs that we have at those same sites. Just briefly, in terms of other background, I completed my PharmD at UW-Madison, did residency training to go into critical care at Barnes-Jewish Hospital in St. Louis. And I had a couple uh, different roles in between then and now. First up was serving as an ICU clinical specialist did that at Borges Medical Center in Kalamazoo, Michigan, as well as in the surgery and trauma ICU at Barnes-Jewish Hospital for several years. And subsequent to that, I worked as both a clinical coordinator and PGY-1 program director at Aurora Baker Medical Center in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Hey, I'm Eliza D. Borman. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice at Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa. I wear several different hats here at my institution. I serve as a faculty preceptor, but more recently in the past several years, I've been a part of our experiential education team, and I am the Advanced Pharmacy Practice Experience Coordinator for Drake. I graduated from Butler University in 2011 and then went on to complete the 24-month pharmacotherapy residency with Indiana University Health and Butler University. Thank you all so much for agreeing to be here today. Sean, before we get started, let's just start with a basic overview. When someone asks or is being asked to write a letter of reference, for a residency program. Walk us through what all that entails. So with the word letter of recommendation, it's a common misconception for applicants that this is an actual letter, when in fact, it's basically a mini survey with comment boxes. It's not a big secret either. You can just Google forecast recommendation form and find it online. Applicants will essentially create as many of these blank surveys as they want and send them to reference writers. They do this by titling them in forecasts, for example, giving one the title of generic hospital-based residency letter, or another one is St. Taylor's Medical Center in Missouri. I figured you'd like that one. 
And, and they do this based on whether they want their reference writers to individualize the letters to specific programs or not. As a writer, you get an email notification that you have received a request for one of these, and then you can log in a forecast and fill out the survey. The survey covers some basic questions about your relationship and contact time with the candidate, and then has a series of 13 skill-based questions of which they, they ask you to complete three of those, followed by these broader questions that focus on the nature of interactions, candidate strengths, areas for improvement, and it all ends with this final strength recommendation or recommendation of strength from do not recommend to highly recommend. And this can be a daunting process for writers. I know myself, I always get, if I get several of these requests, it becomes a, a real time management issue to, to try to get them all done. So it does help that it automatically copies your comments forward if you get multiple requests from a single applicant. However, programs can still request additional documents like that traditional letter of reference. But as we continue on to the future, that becomes way less commonplace. Yeah, I think that's a great overview. So I want to just go ahead and open this up to the group. What are the perceived benefits of the letters of reference as opposed to the other, maybe more objective pieces of the residency application? I'll go ahead and jump in. And just to give you a little bit of context, can I... I described my role here at Drake University. You'll notice I did not mention that I'm affiliated with a residency program, and I am not. I, uh, I don't review letters of reference. And so really, I come, you know, I, I look at this based on my role as a writer and also you know, someone who advises students. But I think the perceived benefit of these is that it gives personal insight into skills and attributes that may not be captured on a CV. And as we'll talk about later, when we talk about some of the things that we discovered in our study, some of these things could be things like maturity or professionalism. And so thinking about those attributes that will help to ensure a good residency candidate and also demonstrate fit, not just fit for that program, but also fit for postgraduate training. Yeah, I uh, really agree with what Eliza said there. And maybe just to add a couple additional thoughts to that from the perspective of the reviewer or someone kind of screening these applications. I think additionally, we really value when we feel the information comes from a trusted source who's had the opportunity to observe that applicant's performance over time. So certainly we recognize that during the course of an interview, for example, we really get a very limited window into that that person. And so when we receive a well-written letter that comes from someone who's had the opportunity to know and work with that person over weeks, months, or even years in some cases, that can provide value. Yeah, I totally agree with Lee. It's it's finally a chance where we don't have to just believe the applicant. We're, we're seeing someone else speak up on their behalf who can vouch for some of those skills and their knowledge and their attitudes that they were able to witness, whether it be on a rotation or over their academic career. So that's really valuable because a subjective assessment of your own skills and knowledge can be a flawed tool. Um, and this way we can corroborate that with someone else's opinion and make sure that someone else has seen those same strengths that the applicants are identifying too. So what issues do you see with the current process? I could maybe start that discussion with, I think, just pointing out what I think is becoming, you know, is so evident to us in recent years. And in just that at a high level, this system is quite strained in the fact that, of course, we have far more applicants than we do positions available. And so I think in recent years, it's something like one third of PGY1 applicants are unable to be matched ultimately to a program. And so it's really created a situation where we have a much larger 
of really highly qualified applicants for a pretty limited number of spots. And of course, even more limited in the context of one residency program. And so on that side of it, it becomes very difficult then to differentiate which applicants do we feel are best suited for a particular program and vice versa, that we can meet their needs and help them you know, achieve the goals that they seek. And uh, I think along with that, the strain certainly requires a lot of resources as well. And then some of these issues were nicely summarized in another publication by Brent Reed and colleagues looking at the PGY-1 selection process. I'll build upon what Lee just described. Again, I'm approaching this from the standpoint of someone who writes letters for students. I think because of that strain that he described, because of the competitive nature of seeking out a residency, there's a lot of uncertainty about how to best position our students to you know, move forward in that process. I always question you know, how little or how much do programs want to see filled out on that standard forecast reference form. And there, there's this kind of unspoken pressure to give the candidate the best possible chance to really obtain that interview at that site. And then I think the second thing that comes to mind, again, is someone who advises students on how to select a reference is, again, that uncertainty about what programs want to see in terms of a mix. Is it all from preceptors? Is it from preceptors, advisors, employers, et cetera? Yeah. And for me, the biggest concern I had, especially back when I was uh, an RPD, I think it comes down to, you think about how much work goes into writing these letters, um, how many hours and hours of, of time. And what you end up getting, especially based on some other literature out there, what you end up receiving is what tends to be a largely inflated, a very positive letter that may not always accurately represent the candidate's true skill level. And I think that means that all that work and effort really isn't as useful as it could be. If the positive words are analyzed and found to be happening 150 more times than any kind of words related to flaws or things to work on for the applicant, it's difficult as an RPD to make a good call on who are the best fits for my program. So I think that's the number one thing I would say we need to work on is to make sure that we don't also come to the pressure that if, if I say a negative thing about an applicant, that that's going to doom their chances of getting a residency. It feels like to me that being honest about what the biggest areas of need are for every applicant will help ensure that they all get matched to the best sites that they should be at and to ensure that we can tailor our training then to make sure that they're getting the things they need to get ready for the next step in their career. I really like that you all have started this dialogue. I think it's very important. Anecdotally, as writers, have you all seen an uptick in the number of students requesting references from you over the last five years? Personally, yes. We, we've seen a big, big uptick over here at Neomed. It's, I think, probably a result of, of playing the game and being informed on what, what the odds are of getting a residency and trying to do their best to ensure that their letters are matched precisely to the different programs they're applying to and taking advantages of, of, you know, they know this person has a tie to that program, so I'm going to have them write a letter over there versus this other writer I'm going to use for these other programs. So I think we're probably seeing an increase not only in those students that are applying to residencies, which will obviously increase the number of requests for letters, but then also an increase in how many letter writers they're seeking out to write letters and then using them creatively to across different programs in the area. Yeah, I would agree with that assessment. I do think there's been an increase. I think back on you know, the past several years, not dramatically, but trending in that direction, certainly. Yeah, for, for me, I would say it's been stable, but that's probably just more 
a reflection of some of the roles that I've had recently, but certainly across the board, seeing an increase in applications in recent years to our programs. Yeah, I think those are all interesting assessments. And before we get to some of the nitty gritty and discuss some of the research you've done on this topic and maybe some of the recommendations you all have, we want to take a quick break for some classic PGP trivia. And I haven't even continued to keep score at this point because I know I'm so far ahead of Sean, but <laughs> I can go ahead and uh, and ask my question if, if that's okay with you, Sean. Uh, that's fine. And just, you know, it's five to seven, Taylor, one and seven, me. So just so our guests here know how bad I am at <laughs> trivia, you go ahead, Taylor, ask your question. All right. This is for everybody. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of geography. So... I want you to answer, what is the deepest, pay attention to that, the deepest lake in the world? And I'll give you some choices. Is it Lake Huron, Lake Michigan, Lake Baikal, or Lake Victoria? I'm going to go with C, only because it's the one I've never heard of before. I'm going to go with D, Lake Victoria, but that is a pure guess. So I was hoping the question was going to go focus on the U.S., because I think that's Crater Lake having just gone there recently. But um, taking it broader, I think I would guess similarly to Eliza with D. I just want to follow convention here and just jump on board the wagon with D. <laughs> but I don't know, Taylor, for some reason, I it's like that, you know, the back of your head thing. It's telling me Lake Huron is the, uh, is the deepest lake. So I'm going to go with that one, which I think is A. All right. Well, Sean, you shouldn't listen to that voice in the back of your head. Uh, You should have listened to Mate, actually. uh, So it's Lake Baikal, which is in Russia, actually. And get this, it is, depending on the source that you look at, it's 5,315 feet deep. That's in, that's insane. If you, if you look at Lake Huron and Lake Michigan there, I think they're less than a thousand feet. So really crazy, but (laughs) Lake Victoria is Lake Victoria is oh, very close see. to that though I believe. <laughs> yeah, I have no plans to ever go to Russia, so I'll never probably get to see it in person. So, all right, my turn, Taylor. Mine's easier than yours, and I feel bad. I have two little girls, and in the sweltering heat of our salt life summertime living down here, uh, they love to eat watermelon. They actually think of it as a treat, which is perfectly fine with me, because it's, I don't consider it one. So it's officially time to plant some watermelon since watermelons typically mature over three months with peak season being July through August. So if you haven't guessed it already, Taylor, this is a watermelon question. And this is why I texted you earlier today and said it was a juicy question. (laughs) (laughs) You all might not have heard this episode. Taylor last week only gave me an option with the Chewbacca costume for a three pound range. So I'm going to equally give him that same range here. So on a in a percent range, plus or minus three percent, what is the percent water in a watermelon? I'm going to guess seventy percent. It's a noble guess. Is this closest without going over? Should I price? No, it's this? just within three. You can get within three. Because I would I would just guess one percent. Hope you all go over. <laughs> <laughs> Smart move. I'm going to come in high at 95%. Ooh. I was thinking 75%. I'll take are you five. Really, are you really going with one? I was going to say, are you going with 1%? No, no, well, I should. If that if it's Price is Right rules, then I, I would win this one, I'm pretty sure. But I'm going to go with 65%. 65? Well, Lee actually got it right. It's uh, it's 92%. Oh. So just right there within that wow. range. Wow. That's Nailed a lot of, it. Yeah. 
That's pretty juicy. <laughs> I was actually surprised by how much water is in a watermelon, which makes me now even more confident that it is not a treat. My girls can eat as much as they want of it. All right, back to the serious stuff, Taylor. Well, it's obvious that there might be flaws with this process that you all mentioned previously. And this specific issue has definitely been gaining traction, I've noticed, over the last year or so. Lee, I'd like to start with you. You and a group of colleagues in the education and training PRN with ACCP recently published a PRN opinion paper last year in the Journal of the American College of Clinical Pharmacy entitled Letters of Reference for PGY-1 Pharmacy Residency Candidates, a Survey of Residency Program Directors and Opinion Statement. For our listeners, we will post the citation of the paper so you can read it afterwards, and I would highly encourage everyone do that. But before we get into the nitty gritty, do you mind just sharing what prompted this initiative? Yeah, absolutely. So the impetus for this study really started just with some informal discussion uh, among some of the members of the research team at a professional meeting. So we'll have to all go a little bit back in time here and think pre-COVID, right at a time when in-person meetings were routine. And it was at one of those where there was essentially, you know, some discussion and, and honestly, some just sharing of frustrations really about the things we've just discussed, some of those perceived issues uh, with letters of reference. Specifically, you know, that it was felt that they were commonly overinflated and often lacked some of the accurate and honest information that we know can be so helpful when we're trying to get a better understanding of a particular candidate and where they're at, you know, in their development. And so when I became a part of this discussion, a bit removed from that initial conversation, for me, it prompted the idea to perform this survey. You know, it's one thing, certainly, we had some opinions on our own experiences, but we thought it'd be much more valuable to better understand this problem and to essentially survey then a broad group of program directors to better understand how is it that they perceive and what do they value most when it comes to reviewing letters of reference as a part of a candidate's application and also try to understand some of the processes that programs are using to work through that. And really the whole goal is to take from this something that we can then use to better inform the different stakeholders from the writers of the letters of reference themselves, hopefully some changes to the forecast form to better improve the process, and then for residency applicants themselves. So building off that rationale, Eliza, you were also a key investigator in this study. Do you mind sharing a brief overview of the question and problem you sought to answer, as well as the methods you all used to approach this question? Absolutely. We really wanted to answer that question that we described. You know, how do we maximize the value of these letters? And we wanted to understand specifically RPD's processes for evaluating letters annually, understanding what they value most when they're reviewing those letters, and then looking at overall what are their perceptions of this current process. So what we did was we sent a survey, an electronic survey, to all RPDs of ASHP accredited PGY1 programs. We allowed up to one response per program, so that RPD could pass that survey along to a coordinator or another preceptor there at the site to complete. But it was really important to us that each program only had one response. And in that electronic survey, we asked a number of different questions or types of questions. We asked about demographics and program details. We also wanted to understand the process. So do they utilize a rubric to review letters? What are the different types of requirements that they have out of their candidates when they submit those letters? 
And then we also asked several Likert scale questions about the value of various components of both the application as a whole and then also about specific components of the letter of reference. That survey concluded with two open-ended questions as well. The first one being, what suggestions do you have for reference authors? And then the second question was a much more global question, and we wanted to know what changes they felt could be made to forecasts. Great. So, Lee, after you all gathered and tabulated all that information, do you mind just sharing some key highlights of the findings of the study? Yeah, absolutely. So, as Eliza just nicely described, we we ultimately asked 25 different questions. And so there was a lot of great information that we took from this and probably more than, than of course, we can cover with our time today. So what I thought I'd do is summarize four maybe key takeaways from those survey findings. The first point is something we spoke a little bit to, but puts some numbers to it, which is programs receive a really large number of applications and thus have a lot of letters of reference to review. So specifically, over 15% of programs report that they receive each cycle over 100 applications. About 30% of programs receive between 40 to 100 applications, and then the remaining half of, of programs receive fewer than 40 applications. So it just speaks to the volume of information that programs and program directors are evaluating. And it's maybe not surprising why 80% of programs reported having a rubric to specifically help evaluate those letters of reference. The second takeaway is that program directors do still highly value the letters of reference as a part of the application review. So three quarters rated that those letters are either quite or extremely valuable. Another 20% rated them as moderately valuable. And there were only 5% who felt that they only had slight value. This rating was really somewhat similar to how they rated both the CV and the cover letter. While interestingly, but maybe not as surprising, the academic record was rated somewhat less valuable than those other three components. The third point, and what we thought was one of the really interesting findings, was sort of this juxtaposition of how program directors rated the value of certain components of the letters of reference compared against their perception of how frequently those same components are actually included in the letters that they receive. So to dive into that just a little bit, inclusion of specific candidate strengths, specific areas for improvement, providing detailed comments for the characteristics that they evaluate, each of those three areas were all rated as very important by 90% or more of the respondents. However, when we then asked RPDs, how frequently do you perceive that these three components are included in the letters, it was only the specific strengths that they perceived to be present in a majority of letters, whereas those opportunities for growth and inclusion of detailed comments were more often missing than not. And this, of course, falls in line with some of the things that we've discussed in our, our personal experiences. A related and important finding to this same issue was that nine out of 10 survey respondents, when asked directly, indicated that inclusion of constructive comments in the letters did not negatively impact the chances of an on-site interview. The fourth takeaway that I thought I would just briefly summarize is regarding the ratings for letter of recommendation authors and how they rate each person on those 13 required elements that were referred to earlier or characteristics of the applicant. And in this area, it was primarily the soft skills and project management performance that were reported to be of greatest value. So more specifically, ratings for time management, dependability, ability to work with peers, independence, and acceptance of feedback as well as maturity, those were the areas that tended to be ratings of greater value for RPDs as compared to the evaluations of writing skills 
confidence or knowledge base, for example. And to just round that point out, those evaluations that letter of reference authors provide were reported to impact how the candidates are viewed and potentially impact decisions for interviews. So I think those are all really good key summary points. And I do appreciate how when you all wrote the paper, you talked about those soft skills, because I know Taylor and I really appreciate telling students about those soft skills and working on those soft skills with students. At the end of your paper, you all outlined some recommendations for reference writers, forecasts, and residency applicants. Eliza, do you mind sharing a couple of those key recommendations your group had for letters of reference writers? Sure. We had three main recommendations to letter writers. And again, these are outlined in our article in a table. So I'll kind of walk you through those three main recommendations. The first one is to have a candid discussion with candidates who request a letter of reference from you. And this brought up a a few different points within the, the responses that we received. And one is to discuss the candidate's goals for residency, really understanding why they're pursuing a residency in general or those specific residencies that they're applying to and gaining their input on the types of characteristics that perhaps they would like to see mentioned in your letter. But this also brings up the issue of whether or not to serve as a reference for that individual in the first place. And so really having a candid conversation with that candidate. And ultimately, if you feel like you can't provide a recommend or highly recommend evaluation of that candidate, then being honest with them and refusing to serve as a reference. Again, that's a really difficult thing to do, I know, as as someone who is wanting that student to succeed. But again, ultimately, we want those students to have the best chance and to really find a letter writer who's a good fit and can vouch for them. The second recommendation is to contextualize your relationship with that candidate. What we found in our study was that RPDs really value understanding that relationship between the writer and the candidate. So really outlining, again, I I think this is a piece of forecast, and so all of us do this, but really specifically outlining the depth of that relationship. In what ways do you know that candidate? And then ultimately comparing that candidate to other peers, perhaps, or maybe past students that you've seen move on to residency. So for instance, is this student in the top 10% of students that you've ever precepted? Are they perhaps the strongest student that you've seen out of this APPE cohort? Those types of descriptions tended to be very helpful, or at least that's what we saw in the data. And then finally, ultimately ask or answering the question, would you want this candidate in your program. And again, a lot of that has to do with the types of residencies that these students are pursuing. But again, just thinking about, is this someone who you would want to work with and mentor over the next year? And then the third recommendation is providing an honest and specific assessment of the candidate. And Lee touched on this a little bit. Honesty was a word that came up over and over again in our qualitative thematic analysis. So really trying to avoid overinflating a candidate's performance or characteristics. And then also when possible, providing very specific detailed examples. So for instance, if you are commenting on a candidate's time management skills, not just saying that they have great time management skills, but demonstrating that. So in what ways did you challenge their time management skills? In what ways did they rise to the occasion? What strategies did you see them utilize and how did that develop over the time that you've known them? Those are the types of examples that RPDs really want to see in those letters. I have to emphasize the point you made about rejecting the students. That resonates with me because I, when I was a student, I had a, it was my only acute care and it was with an oncology faculty 
but it, it just so happened like that was my acute care. So I, I had to ask for that letter because this was like my only one going into mid-year. And I remember he said, he's like, Sean, are you sure you want me <laughs> writing you a letter of reference? Which was his way of saying, I'm going to be honest. And I knew that and I appreciated that. And, and, you know, at the time I was thinking, oh, please fluff it. But retrospectively, you know, I really appreciated that he was honest with me to let me know if you ask me to write this and I he goes, I will write it, but I'm, you know, I'm going to be honest about your struggles and your growth and all that stuff. So, yeah. And I think as a, a preceptor, I think that's a really challenging thing to do to have that difficult conversation with that student to say, I may not be the best person to write this for these reasons, or at the very least, giving them that opportunity to back out, to say, I will write this letter, but here are things that I would include. Think about it and get back to me. I think certainly, again, it's a difficult conversation, but one that we owe to our students. Yeah, I had every opportunity to back out, but I bulldozed forward, <laughs> which was also probably why I had a scramble. <laughs> well, I think those are all great, tangible things that, that our listeners can take away from them. And I would just highly encourage those listeners and our and future reference writers to take a deeper look at this article as it provides a lot of great recommendations and advice on writing your letters of recommendation and not just pulling it up right before you're writing them, but just reading it now as the next cohort of students comes in, because I think there's a lot of great information in there that you can apply to you know students that are taking your rotation that are going to potentially ask you about letters. So at this point, I want to put Mate on the spot a little bit since he also recently published an editorial in the same journal, JACCP, entitled Lost in Translation, What Residency Program Directors Really Want from References. This editorial actually sparked the desire for Sean and I to want to record this episode because you make a a call to the profession to disseminate the findings that Lee, Eliza, and their team had. So besides that, What do you think the overarching point you were wanting to convey in the editorial was? I think there's actually probably two messages for two different audiences. You've got one aimed towards the applicants, those that are seeking the letters of reference, and and one to those folks that are being asked to write those letters. For the students, I think the data both that Lee and Eliza and their team put together and others have brought to light really says, number one, you don't need to chase big names. I think the most important thing you want to do with your letter writers is identify folks that have a real relationship with with you that have had the ability to evaluate you objectively and aren't people who maybe, yeah, have a, a big name in the world of pharmacy, but may not necessarily be as well connected to the applicant at the end of the day. Those letters of reference are a way to get another set of eyes on your skills. And if you get a big name, but they can't really speak specifically to what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are, it's going to be a subpar letter of recommendation at the end of the day. And Point number two is the sort of obsession with clinical skills and knowledge among those applicants. I think that's also to their detriment as well, because surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly to RPDs, but would be surprising to students, what Lee and Eliza found in their data is that, no, really, those soft skills are, are the top thing that the RPDs are looking for in their letters of reference. So those are for the students. Don't chase the big names just because they're out there. Make sure you have a real relationship with your letter writers. And point number two, don't be so preoccupied with knowledge and skills when really soft skills are what we're looking for the most. 
For the letter writers, two similar points. Uh, I brought up one already earlier. There's a there's a great paper by Atia and colleagues that I, I referenced in the in the editorial that found basically 74% of all the ratings in the ASHP forecast portal are exceeding expectations. Furthermore, 25%, a quarter of them all are selected as exceeding expectation, meaning all 13 areas being evaluated for a full quarter of all applications are marked as exceeding expectations, um, which seems a little unrealistic. So don't be afraid of incorporating areas for improvement in those letters of reference. As an RPD, you have a really tough task of teasing out a rank list out of a group of usually highly qualified, highly talented individuals. And those data points in terms of where are the areas to work on are key to make sure that when I match with someone, my program has strengths in the areas where the applicant needs growth. So don't shy away from incorporating the areas in need of improvement is point number one. And point number two is the need for specifics because a story is going to be way more effective than simply claiming, hey, this person has great communication skills. Really sharing an example of how you know that and how you came to, to identify them as exceeding expectations in that area will really help color that letter of reference in a, in a much better light than just simply stating that, hey, they're excellent in, in these areas in an abstract way. So in short, what do residency program directors really want from references? I think Eliza hit the nail on the head earlier. I think it's honesty, honesty, honesty. That's that's the big one. Uh, and accuracy, because at the end of the day, it's going to be, if it's garbage in, it's going to be garbage out. Our, our rank lists are going to be based on flawed data, and we may not match with the best applicants at the end of the day with our programs. So please, 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 if I could say anything to all the listeners out there, be honest in your letters of reference. Um, make sure you include both the strengths and the areas in need of improvement so that as an RPD, we can make the best decision possible for our program and for the applicants at the end of the day. So in our final moments, do you all have any just final pieces of advice, wisdom, or tangible pearls you can give to reference writers, whether they're doing this for the first time or maybe they're doing it for their hundredth time? Well, I, re I really like what Mate said just there. Makes excellent points. Um, and very well stated. I think just to add to his second point there, having something to point out that's maybe constructive in nature and also providing a strong letter aren't mutually exclusive. So you can certainly still provide a positive letter and be honest and reflect on an area where someone has an opportunity for growth. As program directors, we get that. We expect that. And it helps us then think about what are the strengths of our program and how can we help develop this individual? It's not something that's just going to scare everyone away or be perceived as a negative uh, impact overall. I think one tip that I'd like to share has to do with something tangible that you can do to help provide more specific examples and feedback, especially in the face of, like we talked about earlier, more and more students coming to you to request letters of reference. And that would be starting to take notes and prepare for those the moment that that candidate requests that reference from you. <clears throat> I know here at Drake, at least, many times, it's usually in the last day of that rotation that students will ask, could you provide me with a positive letter of reference when I apply to residencies later this year? And oftentimes, I used to say yes, and it was out of sight, out of mind until I received 
that request later in December. And it was very overwhelming at that point because you have multiple students to evaluate and to provide meaningful feedback on. And so one practice that I instituted is, again, the moment that that student requests it and we agree that I'll serve as a a reference writer, I start a document and I start immediately jotting down notes and examples and things that will help me later in December when I receive those forecast requests so that I can provide a really detailed description of our working relationship, the things that I observed while they were on rotation with me or while we worked together. Again, just to help provide those more specific examples that RPDs clearly want to see in those letters. All excellent points. Um, I I think I I don't have any additional ones to add except just to rehash uh, some of the points that have already been made. So um, I love the idea that Eliza brings up, collecting sort of artifacts along the way that you can refer back to later, whether it be just a handful of bullet points, whether it be a rubric you filled out for different projects, a journal club presentation, what have you. If we're going to get the most out of our residents each year. We got to make sure our matches are solid, especially considering how many students are not going to get residencies. So we have to make sure at the end of the day, whatever we do, make sure your evals are honest, make sure they are specific, make sure that you provide the RPD with the tools they need to make the right decision for their rank list. Two uh, final points to maybe add to that in terms of tangible things. One is just specifically giving the context as well for your relationship with that candidate and maybe some description of what their responsibility is. It just gives us a little bit of a view into the lens that you know that candidate through. And then the second would be something Eliza touched on earlier in the recommendations, but don't skip the part where you have an honest and candid discussion with the candidate before writing the letter, both as it relates to the letter, but making sure you have a good understanding of what their ultimate goals are, how they're weighing different programs, because those things might influence how you approach that letter. Excellent. Well, Lee, Eliza, and Mate, thank you all so much for being here. It was a pleasure having you as guests on the Postgraduate Pharmacist today. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much. Yes, thank you. If you want to continue to hear up-to-date topics from us and our guests, please like and subscribe. Let us know your thoughts on letters of reference by messaging us on Twitter at PGP Pharmacists. Remember, you can listen to us on all major podcasting apps. And don't forget to check out the links in the description below if you want templates for the forecast letter of reference or show notes from the episode. 